0: Hello everyone, Jose Zeiss here, and we're so thrilled that you've joined us. If you're a part of our church family, Welcome, welcome. If you've just joined in because of, you, know, you, you stay at home and you decided to tune in, please let us know. All we know are the numbers on the screen of people who are watching, but we would lo- love to know that you're here. So do me a favor, even right now, if you're watching on our online platform, uh, just tell us where you're from. Just jump over and just say quickly, whether it's California or Georgia, or another part of the world, we would love to give you an extra welcome And if this has been helpful to you, this is one way communication, unfortunately, and we love feedback. We love to hear stories of people who have been helped or encouraged in this time. Uh, Just drop us an email today or this week at hello at 26westchurch.org. That's our catch all email, hello at 26westchurch.org. It will be forwarded over to me. I would love to read it. And our team would just be thrilled to know that God's using this somehow for your good. Well, with that in mind, today we're going to look at the Bible and let's just ask this question. If you've ever gone to church, how come so much time is spent looking at the Bible? At least in in our situation, we clock it out. Half of our gathering time or more is spent looking at the Bible. Why spend all of that time looking at an ancient book? Well, in one sense, we know the Bible is unique for us as Jesus followers. We see it as the most important and life-changing resource ever given. There is nothing more influential than the pages that we call the Bible. We see it as transformative and not just a book on the shelf, but these are the keys, the very words from God for our good. But even in history, if you think about it, uh, the Bible is the Guinness Book of World Records, number one book of all time. More than five billion printed in the last 50 years alone, let alone before that. And you think of what comes next, trivia. What's two and three? Uh, Well, number two is the Quran. That kind of makes sense with a lot of Muslim people looking to that holy book. And then you have number three, which is interesting. Uh, the quotations of Chairman Mao, which, you know, from China, okay, that kind of makes sense because they populate his sayings all across China. And then what's number four? This was a shocker to me. Don Quixote. I would have never, I have never read it. I'm actually going to read it this summer because I found it to be intriguing. More than 500 million copies of Don Quixote. Think of the royalties. Holy. Anyway, let's get back to the Bible. The Bible is the number one book of all time, and what does Jesus have to tell us, not only about the significance of the Bible, but the power of the Bible, where we're going to see it. If you've been with us, we're in uh, the way of Jesus, we're in Matthews 5, 6, and 7. Last week, we looked at salt and light, So, so Jesus says, let your light shine so that people will see your good deeds and bring glory to God. You and I matter because God is gonna work in and through us for the good of others. So Jesus announces disciples good news. Your lives are useful, which is a radical message in Jesus's day for him to announce to people who are not the religious authorities. Jesus goes to people who haven't gone to quote unquote, seminary. Jesus goes to people who have no political clout and he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, some people would say like, that's a radical claim. And some may wonder, where's Jesus getting this stuff? And I think by the time Jesus is speaking, doing his miracles, some are wondering, is he in line with God's messengers? And then he announces, look at verse 17. Some may be thinking, well, Jesus has his own message, which was different than what God had already said. Hold on. Look at Jesus quoting about the Bible. Verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law, and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then these impactful words, verse 18, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of the commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." (laughs) early on, and Matthew wants to let us know, as he gives us this message from Jesus, where does Jesus fit with the whole of the Bible, the Bible that they had, and Jesus is unequivocally clear. He hasn't come to throw this out. Yes, he comes with a radical message, but it's radical in line with what God has already said. So, okay, what are the law and the prophets? And your Bible probably has it in caps, the L and the P. What are the law and the prophets? Well, the law we know is the Greek word for the Hebrew term Torah. And in Jesus's day, they already had what, what we call the Bible. Now I'm going to use these words interchangeably. Sometimes I say scriptures. Sometimes I say Bible, uh, Torah. We're speaking about the same thing. Different words that say the same thing. And in their day, the first five books of the Bible, in particular, if you have read it, in Exodus, when God delivers his people out of Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai, and there God reveals his way, his teaching. So when I read law, I immediately think if I break this, there's a penalty, or if I break the speeding law, I get a ticket. Do not think of that as the heart when we say Torah or the teaching or the law. This was the guideline. The the Torah was the gift of God to his people. Here's why. We worship a God we cannot see. Have you seen God with your physical eyes? We haven't seen him. And we know from what he's revealed that he's the creator of the entire universe. How in the world Are we gonna know what God is like? How in the world are we gonna know how to approach this holy and perfect God? And how do we know how to come in the right way? Because we're not holy, we're not perfect as He is. How are we not gonna offend this God? Here's the good news, God's God's given us exactly what we need to do. So this is not a rule book that's gonna keep us away. This is the key to us coming close to God. And as people began to read these first five books, the law, they, they saw that there were 613 keys, 613 statements about how we're supposed to live. Now, 248 of these are things we're supposed to do. And then 365 of these are things we're not supposed to do. So when you think about the 10 commandments, Right? That's just the beginning. That's the first 10. There's 603 other statements about what we do and what we don't do. And a lot of these are about the nitty gritty, super specific things. And these are beautiful gifts. Now, we read them as strange because a lot of them, some of them talk about dust and mold and what to do with this food and that food and what to do with this kind of clothing and that kind of clothing. You gotta remember, these people did not know God. And they were living in a real space in a real way and God says to them in particular, as I take you to this land that I'm gonna give you, this promised land, I want you to live in the right with me and I want you to live in the right with one another. So a lot of the the law, a lot of the teaching, a lot of the way of God is about how to reconcile when we mess up inside of God, how to make things right. And when we mess up one with another, when someone borrows something and it breaks or they lose it, how do you make things right? If someone inadvertently hurts someone, how how do you bring justice? How do you do what's right before God and right before one another? So this is the law. And what we get from Jesus is, is radical in its claim. I want us to look at verse 17. Do not think I've come to abolish it. Okay, so far, so good. Because as a, as a Jewish rabbi, anyone who speaks outside of the law of God is supposed to be kicked out of the camp. So if Jesus claims, well, that's, we don't need that anymore. Any good, Bible reading, practicing Jew would immediately close their ears and run away from this person. So, so far, so good. But look at what he says next. I haven't come to abolish it. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill them. Now, this is a bold statement. If I were to say to you, hey, if you've read the Bible, if you've ever read the Bible, here's the good news. I'm going to speak to you today. And I've come to fulfill the Bible. Like whatever the Bible is leaning in towards, Jose, I have come to fulfill it. You should run. You should, you should get away from me and you should listen to anything I say. Yet thousands of years later, we are reading the words of Jesus and he claimed to fulfill everything that God had been telling his people through Moses, written down, practiced for thousands of years. Jesus says... I haven't come to remove it, every word, every stroke matters and I'm going to fulfill it. This is, this is absolutely life changing and it's why we follow the way of Jesus and it's why we read the Bible, it's why we spend so much time and attention. But you may be asking the obvious question, what does it mean? When Jesus says I've come to fulfill it, what does that mean? Well, I want us to look at three dimensions. There may be more, but at least three that cover what Jesus is implying when he says he came to fulfill it. So write these things down. Uh, Three things. Number one, Jesus came to fulfill uh, means that Jesus is going to do the things that the scriptures talk about. There are things in the Bible that point to what Someone is going to do it. And in that sense, Jesus comes to fulfill. Remember he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. And what's the other word? The prophets. Now, the way our Bible's structured, we just have in the English Bible, we have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. So we have two sections, 39 books in the Old, 27 in the New. That makes up the 66 books of we call the Bible. But in their day, they didn't have what we call the New Testament written. They had three sections which made up what we now call the Old Testament. They had the law, first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then they had the writings, uh, and this includes the Psalms and the wisdom literature, and then they had the prophets. And these were all of the books written by God's messengers, the big ones that we know, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and the, the smaller written, not, not smaller in that they're unimportant. It's just that they are literally shorter. The, what we call the minor prophets. So you have these three sections. Now, most Jews spent the, the big attention on the first five, the law, because it gave clear instructions. And then the writings look back at the law uh, on how Israel messed up, how they broke it. And then the prophets point back to the law and remind people like, look what happens when, when you and I disobey God. And oh, by the way, here's the call to return, to return to what? To return to the 613, to return to the way of knowing God and living in a way that honors him and honors one another. Okay. So, so Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now the prophets, that's what Matthew hints at all in his gospel, you're going to see seven times by, by this occurrence here that Jesus came to fulfill, to fulfill, to fulfill. In chapters 1 through 4, you already see it seven times. And what does Matthew do? Well, he tells us clearly, look back at Matthew 1 as an example, but there's seven of them already. One twenty two. all this took place to, quote, fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, And then he quotes from Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And then Matthew puts like in brackets so people know what Emmanuel means. That means God with us. So Isaiah's got a prophecy about this virgin that's going to conceive. And what does Matthew tell us? Well, that ancient word from God was a marker for this one that's to come. Oh, Jesus came to fulfill. So when you look at these prophecies that God had given, Jesus fulfills them. And I think most of us, most of us get that dimension, that Jesus uniquely fulfills what God had been talking about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So while the Bible in the beginning is leaning forward to someone who's going to come, who's going to be like Moses, who's going to deliver God's people. Uh, Who is that person? Well, we know what they're going to be like because we have tangible words that need fulfillment. And so Jesus does that. Great. But that's not the only way that Jesus, so it's not like we look to the Old Testament and say, okay, all I need from the first part of the Bible are the the markers, the words from the prophets that lead forward to Jesus. Forget about the rest because Jesus came to fulfill all that old stuff. And now the only thing that it does is it reminds us that Jesus has come. Hold on for a second. There are other dimensions. The second one, write this down because Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets. Okay, so we know the the fulfillment of the prophetic words. But what does it mean to fulfill the law? The 613 commands. How does one person fulfill 613 commands? I'm so glad that you asked. Write this down. What it means to fulfill, it means that Jesus would bring out the full meaning of Scripture. What, what these early teachings from God meant, the full and complete meaning is now going to be given to us by whom? By Jesus. Now, what, is, what does that actually mean? The rabbis, the teachers in their day, what did they do? Well, they did exactly what we do in our church. They would read from the Bible. They would get the ancient scrolls. So the laws on a scroll and the writings and the prophet there on a scroll. And they'd read them in the synagogue. And they would explain, okay, here here's what God said. This is what God means. And and here's how we live it out. Because by the time of Jesus, you're more than a thousand years after the writings were already there. So even in Jesus's day, they were looking at an ancient book. What did it mean when you're living in the land of Israel under Roman authority? How do we live out the 613 commands when there is no Jewish king? So even in Jesus's day, they needed the Bible to be explained, just like we need it today. Now, the rabbis didn't agree. They're humans. They're like us. So there were multiple schools of thought or interpretations. Uh, You know this because if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we get these two groups. Now, there were other groups, but we get at least two. You get the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? So they read the Bible and they didn't agree. So the Pharisees focused on the law and the prophets. And they spent their time not just on the 1613 commands from Moses, but they look at the prophetic writings as well. And so they taught from both. The Sadducees were a different group and they, they acknowledged the prophetic writings, but they only focused on the first five, the Torah. So they came to different conclusions because they didn't take the writings and the prophets as authoritative or as weighty or as important as the first five books. So Jesus, and if you don't know that, Jesus, you you may miss some nuances in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sometimes speaks specifically words to these group uh, of Sadducees, and he speaks a different word to the group of Pharisees. And oftentimes he's addressing the way they interpret the Bible. Here's what it means that Jesus came to fulfill. How do we know the right way to look at any part of the Bible? How do I know what it actually means? Because there's all sorts of opinions about the Bible and Jesus says to his group and now to us thousands of years later, I didn't come to abolish the Bible. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to give the right interpretation of it. And in that sense, Jesus uniquely fulfills what no one else can do. This is why it's important that we read all of the Bible. Now, I'll get to this next week, but part of the challenge is some of us have been told, or it's been inferred, or we just thought, well, because of Jesus, all I need is the second half of the Bible, because the old is old, and I don't need that anymore. All that old stuff was for was just to lead up to Jesus, and so I put that aside, and now I focus on the New Testament. Now I do spend more of my time reading in the New Testament uh, because in light of Jesus, I gain insight. But Jesus himself is saying, not one stroke of a, not one marking is unimportant. Every word in the Bible matters. And if you want to know what every word in the Bible means, come to me. And so we read the Bible now in light of Jesus in light of Jesus. So Jesus's statements about the Bible are gonna color our entire view of it. And so if I wanna know what something means in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, what I do need to do is read those and then I need to read Jesus. By the way, in this message we call the Sermon on the Mount, we're gonna look over the course of the next few weeks over six particular things in what we call the, the law, the Torah that were disputed in their day. And Jesus is going to take the Bible and read it. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and he's going to show us the true meaning of scripture. And if you know the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in some cases, he's going to agree with them. And in some cases, he's going to rebuke them and say, Oh man, you you have good intention, but you actually have it wrong. So Jesus, number one, he came to fulfill what the Bible was going to say about him. He fulfills all of these prophecies, all of these predictions, all of these particular words. Jesus says, I'm standing before you. The Bible is speaking about me. And in the second dimension, uh, we know that Jesus is the one who can interpret the Bible. What is, it? remember, the law, the Torah, the teaching wasn't meant to confuse us, although when we read it thousands of years later, I get it. Some of it looks just confusing. It was meant to draw us close. But because of our own sinfulness, because of our own ignorance, because of our own arrogance, sometimes we find ourselves far from the heart of God. Do you know there are things in your life right now that you're doing that may not be pleasing to God and you don't even know it? You just haven't thought about it. Like, you actually haven't given it any serious consideration. And so what Jesus says is, hey, if you, if you feel like you don't know what to do, what you need to do is not just to read what God has said, you need to follow me. Jesus is the center. And so if I want to know what the heart of God is on any issue, I'm going to begin with looking at Jesus. Now, the third dimension, is going to be helpful in thinking through what the whole purpose of the Bible is. Write this down. What it means that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets is that Jesus' life and teaching, in his life and teaching, he would bring the scriptures or the Bible to its completion. Now, this sounds a little vague, but this is super important. What's the purpose of the Bible? Well, we know that God gave the law to help his people know his heart, know his ways, and follow him. And we know that we have the writings, which are usually a reflection of what was written in the law, and then we have the prophets who are talking about how God's people are not obeying, and he's reminding them uh, to come back. But the heart of the Bible is it reveals to us God's loving relationship with His people. I'm gonna use a fancy term called covenant. If you read back in Exodus 19 and 20, we know that God comes into an agreement with His people. How do I know that? Because it's in the Bible. And when God comes to His people and says, I'm your God, you're gonna be my people, uh, he He tells them, this is what it means to follow me, and I'm inviting you, follow me. Real, practical, tangible terms. And so the law, in one sense, is the terms of the covenant. Here's what God will do, and here's what he's calling his people to do. And God's heart is for his people. Now he's saying, I invite you, come, follow me. And the people agree. And and they say again and again and again, when Moses reads it, will you do these things? Absolutely. We're going to live in relationship with you. It's the framework that we know what relationship looks like. How does god's people do how do they do though in practice in terms of keeping god's way like living in god's heart living in a way that pleases god by honoring him and loving one another how well do they do well all we have to do is read the bible you read into joshua uh, in exodus and into joshua and on and you find that again and again and again every generation continues to stumble at keeping what it means to love God and what it means to love one another. We do our own thing. And so the trajectory of the Bible is this call to relationship. But here is the challenge. God lays out his heart. He lays out his ways and God is faithful again and again and again. And if you read the prophets with that kind of mindset, you realize all the prophets do is say, God is faithful and like a husband. He's been faithful to his bride, and and often God's people are called a bride. Think that's this close, intimate, exclusive relationship. But like a a cheating wife, you have cheated on God. You've done your own thing. And then the call is repent, turn, and God will bring you. God will restore you. But you know what? While we live in rebellion, you're going to feel the weight of what it means to turn your back on God. And you're gonna feel in your own personal relationships and in the culture as a whole, what it means when God is not close and you do your own thing. And often it's just a breakdown, it's a mess. That's the story of the Bible. And by the way, that's our story. So what is God going to do to a group of people like you and me who continually go in the cycle of rebelling and rebelling and rebelling and rebelling? Well, what God promises in the prophets is a total new covenant. So one of the beautiful things about reading all the Bible is you you see the heart of God. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is given a word from God that speaks to how he's gonna break the cycle of a people who continually rebel. God's gonna do something new. It's not that what he had done in the Torah in the first five books was bad. It's good, it's beautiful, but our heart is so deceptive that it's not become effective. Not a problem with God, nothing wrong with God at all. The problem is us. So what's God going to do with a group of people who are stubborn, stubborn and rebellious and continually go their own way? He's gonna do something new. Look at uh, chapter 31 of Jeremiah, verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though, and notice the phrase, I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law, in their minds and i'll write it on their hearts i will be their god and they will be my people and no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another know the lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest for i will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more this is so beautiful that's why i love to read all of the bible Early in the first five books, we know what God's agreement, what God's law, what God's way is like. We keep reading into the writings and we realize everyone breaks it. We all run our own way. But when we wake up and God gets our attention, we come back and things are good for a bit. And then we go our own way again. And in in the writings of the prophets, we get this beautiful statement that in the future, God promises, I'm going to make a whole new agreement. And it's going to be better than the first agreement because on the first agreement, and, and, the, and, and Moses, if you read it, Exodus, he got the law written what? On physical stones. And even in the temple, they kept the tablets. Like, this is what God imprinted. And this is what he wrote, gave to his servant Moses. We have it in writing. And now he says, I'm going to put that that teaching on their mind, it's not just gonna be on pages, I'm gonna put it on their mind, I'm gonna put it in their heart. Okay, that's interesting. And and I'm gonna be their God, they're gonna be my, they're gonna be close, they're gonna be my people, okay? That's great. And I'm going to forgive their wickedness and I'm going to remember their sin no more. And no longer is going to be this distance where someone's got to say, this is the word of the Lord and that's the word of the Lord. Cause no, they're going to have it deeply imprinted in who they are. And he's looking forward to that day. Jeremiah is and everyone after him. So let's recap. Jesus fulfills in his person, the prophecies. And so in that way, he fulfills the law and the prophets. And Jesus is the one who can teach it, just like Moses taught the people, and then after him, Aaron, and after him, uh, the priests and the Levites, they taught the word of the Lord. Well, Who's got the right interpretation? Jesus does. Jesus can inform exactly what God was meaning and saying and how we can live it out. So there doesn't need to be confusion with, I thought they said, and I thought they said, God himself is going to be our teacher. And the third dimension is what makes Jesus the Son of God, the Messiah, and the one you should give your absolute full allegiance to. I am thoroughly convinced there is one person in all of history that you should attach yourself to, listen to, come to, follow, go after, sell everything. As we're gonna see, as we look at the teachings of Jesus, he often says that there's a blessing to come. If someone has this pearl in this field, they sell everything and they chase after the most important thing. In the same way, Jesus is the one we should chase after with all of our attention. Why? Because Jesus is the one who in himself brings about the new covenant. He completes scripture. Everything that God had been saying, There was an agreement, but now there's going to be a new agreement. That new agreement is not just out there somewhere. That new agreement comes in and through Jesus. It's an absolutely new way of doing it. And how do I know this? Because in Jeremiah, it says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no no more. So how, in this sense, does Jesus fulfill everything that the the Bible had been teaching us. Well, it's in himself. You can't just read Matthews five, six, and seven, keep reading all of Matthew. And in that biography, in that gospel, you're gonna see that Jesus takes our sin. The whole system of the first agreement was when we make a mistake or when we like blatantly sin, God provides a way of rescue. And it was often through a sacrifice, whether it was grain, because grain was their currency. So sin is costly. So you would bring this, these particular, uh, this grain or these spices or whatever, and you burn it on the altar and it would go, it would cost you, it was yours. And, and now in, in a symbolic way, your sinfulness has been covered by that offering. Um, for many of these sins, it was the life, the life of an animal whether it was small birds or whether it was a sheep, uh, a life for life, my sin, my rebellion is costly. And so by God's grace, by God's mercy, he's not gonna hold it against me. I'm trusting that God is going to forgive me. And so it was symbolic, but it was pointing ahead to the costliness of sin and the grace of God. And so that animal would take, could it literally take my sin? No. But in God's sight, he recognizes, I see the costliness of sin and I trust him. And I trust that the goodness of God, I'm I'm saddened by my sin. I'm saddened by the loss of that animal. What I did cost someone something. That was all pointing ahead. How does Jesus complete? How does Jesus fulfill scripture? Well, Jesus is going to be the one who once for all, all You see, the problem with our sinfulness and the problem with the whole system is that I continue to rebel and I continue to have to come back and the priests have to make things right and the priests have to do sacrifices for their sins and they have to be in a right spot and then I have to be in a right spot and the sacrifices to be in the right spot and I have to come all the way to Jerusalem every time I would offer the sacrifice. Do you know I can't sacrifice it in my own backyard? I have to make a trek to one place where God's presence is to be made right before God. And you know what? All of that was grace. God provides a way of escape. But now, here's the good news. In Jesus, he's the once for all sacrifice. And now if nothing to do with Matthew, but if you read Hebrews, Hebrews, uh, the writing of the Hebrews is that reminder. You read Hebrews 8 and 9 in particular. In chapter 9, it talks about how Jesus is our great high priest and how Jesus' sacrifice is the one that could make all of us clean and and Jesus' sacrifice can cleanse our conscience. Jeremiah language. I'm gonna remove their wickedness. I'm gonna remember their sin no more. Jesus completes the new agreement and he provides a new way. So now it's, in one sense, it's the same. I came to God guilty and by faith, coming God's way, I received grace and mercy and the ability to live close. And now because of Jesus, it's not that Jesus throws out the Bible, Is Jesus completes what the Bible was pointing towards is that's closeness with God and the removal of wickedness and sin so that on my mind and in my heart. Don't think organ. Think of the central place where you make your decisions. In the deepest place, you and I will know Jesus, the living God, and we will be able to follow Jesus because he's going to give us something within that we didn't have without. And we know looking forward and read over to to the book of Acts, the way that we're going to be able to follow Jesus' teaching is he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. And so now the word of God, which is absolutely beautiful, every word in it, cover to cover, we can now live into it. And the goal of the Bible is to bring us close to God and keep us from our own devices, right? Keep us from going our own way. Now what God has said will be written in our mind, in our heart, and we will have the power to live it out because of what Jesus has done in Jesus' sacrifice, in Jesus' death and resurrection, and in Jesus' ascension and giving of the Holy Spirit. You now, I now, we together have the thoughts of God, we can know His will. Where do you go to direct your life? How do you know God's will? How do you know God's heart? How do you know God's direction? Well, guess what? It's not just the book, it's the Bible is the word of God, which points us to the person of God, Jesus himself. So I get to know God himself in and through Jesus, but how do I know Jesus? It's through the Bible. And so what we're going to see over the next few weeks is Jesus is going to go one by one through these various words from God to his people, and he's going to give the right teaching. But Matthew's 5, 6, and 7 only hint to part of the story. you got to read all the way to, to chapter 28, to the end of Matthew, to realize that it's the person of Jesus that makes life with God possible. All right, let me just bring this full circle. How do we know God? Well, we know God through the Word, the written Word of God through the Bible. But we know God through the physical Word of God, Jesus Christ himself. And so let me just ask you two questions, and I know many of you are in our community groups, that you can use to kind of press into what this means for life for us today. First question, what influence is the Bible having on the way you think and the decisions that you make? You say, we want to follow the way of Jesus. Well, then I would just ask you, well, what influence is the Bible having? Because there's no way that you and I are going to know the heart and the will of God apart from The word of God. So ask each other that question, not as a guilt trip, but as an opportunity to be honest. Some of us have undervalued the importance of scripture, of the Bible, of the teaching in our lives. And we just think we're going to get it right ignoring the Bible. Second question goes along with it and it kind of presses into our heart and motivation. What would it take for our love for Jesus to grow through the Bible? What would it take? What, if the Bible's not having as much influence in our life, what is it going to take for our love for Jesus to grow through the Bible? Ask those two questions. Maybe as a family, maybe you want to do this together today. Definitely in your community group this week, wrestle with those questions and let's invite the Holy Spirit to prompt maybe some things we've been ignoring, maybe some things we've been flat out rejecting, But for many of us, just things we're not even thinking about. And our prayer for you, that this week and in this season of our life as a church, that our love for the Bible would grow because it helps fuel our love for Jesus. And in loving Jesus, we would end up loving the Bible. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that you've given us real clear direction. We don't have to guess your will. We can know it because you've given us the written word of God. But Lord, we confess, we haven't read it as we ought to, we haven't thought about it as deeply as we ought to, and we find ourselves falling short of it. But Lord, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for the giving of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the person of Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you came to complete, you came to open up the new way that we can walk by faith, by God's grace into this new and abundant life. Thank you that you haven't left us alone, but you've given us the Holy Spirit so that we can know your teaching and have it in our mind and heart. Lord, we wanna go in your direction, but we confess again today, we need your help. We need your work. We need your power. So Lord, whatever it is, it's gonna fuel us to an ongoing, growing relationship with you. We pray that you would do it. And Lord, whatever's hindering us from growing in a deeper, loving day by day, moment by moment relationship with you. Lord, expose it so that we can deal with it and and draw deeper and closer to you. We pray these things because we know you want to do them in us as people and as your church. In Jesus' name, amen.